I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. Well, it's a beautiful, fresh Los Angeles morning, and I'm having breakfast with uh, none other than Light Watkins, uh, who's an author, a speaker, and an expert uh, on mindfulness. Uh, Light, it's, it, I just realized it's, it's been about five or six years since we, uh, we last saw each other. Yeah, I think seven years. It was, uh, <laughs> it was in West Hollywood. You were here doing a speech. Don't talk. But I, feel, I kind of feel like this is the picture of Dorian Gray. You seem to have got younger, and, and, I, and I'm kind of the painting that you've hidden away in, in a room somewhere that's that's aged. Maybe it's all the meditation. You know, meditation <laughs> makes you younger. And maybe all the travel that I've done. And the travel, yes. <laughs> I was traveling um, a few years ago. I was I was traveling two weeks out of every month, going on the road teaching meditation, and. Um, and it was fun for about a year. And then I just realized, man, it's just so hard on the body to do that kind of traveling. Right. And what I'm essentially selling is the lifestyle of, hey, this is what meditation is going to do. No, so. no I, th- I think you were saying the lifestyle of hanging out in Venice Beach, <laughs> <laughs> teaching meditation. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that, 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 that factors in as well. But, you know, it's, it's really extraordinary. And I think we sort of, we met up at a very uh, opportune time because mm-hmm. it, it seems in the last five or six years that the world has spun around and, and is now seeing meditation and spirituality under this umbrella term of mindfulness mm. as not just something that's good to have, but it's actually essential to uh, to being a good uh, and highly productive and creative uh, right. person. Right. I, um, I was in that world back when nobody was really talking about <laughs> it. So it's been really interesting for me um, to, to have, to be, to, to operate now where a lot of people are now describing themselves as sort of mindfulness experts, you know, and I think a lot, a large part of that is because it's such a popular keyword, Hmm. but, and also it's such a generic term mindfulness that, um, almost anyone can describe almost anything that they do as having sort of a mindfulness angle. So I think what needs to happen is we need to define what, yeah. what mindfulness actually means. <clears throat> Why don't we start there? Means. <laughs> um, so mind, mindfulness, in, in my experience, is a process of, of looking, at, looking at and experiencing uh, life from a more holistic nature. Hmm. You know, it's not just about uh, one or two dimensional uh, experiences where you see things as what you're experiencing, what someone else is, ex- is experiencing, but you see kind of the whole the whole picture of uh, of the oneness, the unity, connection between what you're experiencing and, and what everything else is is everyone else so, and everything else. So is, is it almost kind of a like a hyper awareness? You could say that, yeah, hyper awareness. I, I would also sort of classify it as a uni uni awareness. You know, kind of a one oneness. So. Right. Um, that's actually, I just made that term up, uni-awareness. <laughs> but I like it. Yeah, it's like a oneness. You have a oneness aspect. So there's, there's of course, going to be the, uh, 
this is me and that's them and this is what's happening in between us. But then there's also in the background or maybe even depending on how evolved we are on the foreground um, is that this is all just one thing that's happening that's playing itself out. And these are all different iterations. I'm an iteration of it. You're an iteration of it. And this experience that we're sharing together is also an iteration of it. But at the baseline, it's, it's oneness. I can see why that's always been of interest to people that are spiritually inclined. But why do you think now uh, in, in the 21st century, you've got companies like Google and uh, you know big corporations trying to teach that that uni awareness in a sense to their people. Like, yeah. Why is that important? I think because it, it, you make more money that way. I think you, you're more effective. We live in a, a culture now, as you know, where everything is transparent and it's hard to be greedy without it being exposed very quickly. It's hard to be, uh, to live from an ego point of view without being exposed and without Why do you think this is about ethics? I think it's all about ethics and money, yes. Absolutely. Huh. I think that's why corporations and also the people who are running the corporations are being exposed to it uh, uh, at an earlier age now. And, and, you know, now the guys who are, you know, the millennials who are in their 30s and 40s, they, you know, a lot of these guys, they grew up uh, being introduced to mindfulness and meditation very young. Whereas when I grew up in Alabama, you know, I'm 43 right now. Um, there was no mention of meditation ever or mindfulness. Right. You know, I live, I'm from the Bible Belt of America. and um, You're told to be mindful of your manners. And that's about <laughs> it, <right>? Exactly. <laughs> Mind your manners. That, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I saw this wonderful picture of, a, I think, the Can- a Canadian police force meditating before they went out in the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, sign, beautiful sign of the times. You yeah. Know? And, and it, it reminds me of the story of, of, of how in the Western culture, you know, we didn't, no one, almost no one brushed their teeth before World War One, hmm. right? So, and if someone did brush their teeth, it was usually there was one toothbrush in the house and everybody shared it. And you would brush your teeth maybe once every five or six months. If that was the case in my household, I probably wouldn't brush my teeth either. <laughs> and then when the soldiers came back from the war, they had inherited the, um, the toothbrushing habit from their European uh, counterparts. And that's where Americans started brushing their teeth and then they started advertising about toothpaste and, and basically became a whole market, a new market, toothpaste, right. toothbrush. And it became less about, you know, the fact that brushing your teeth was healthy for your whole body, because now we know, of course, that each tooth corresponds with some part of your body, but it's really about looking good and, 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 and having pearly white teeth. And I think we're in that stage right now of meditation where it's become a sort of marketing thing where people are, 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 um, are using it in any way they can to get new customers or to get interest in what, whatever they're doing. Hmm. Just throw the term mindfulness at it and then all of a sudden they get the millennials paying attention. It's like organic. It's like organic, yeah, exactly, but without necessarily being organic. And I think that's just the first phase of any kind of new change that happens in our culture. And then over time, it'll start to become a little more segmented in, in what's actual mindfulness or what's real versus what's just marketing. It's always interesting to see these quite Eastern traditions, the way they percolate through to the West. I mean, yoga mm-hmm. sort of, you know, infiltrated uh, the West Coast of America and then sort of went global. Yeah. Um, but now the global the, the global image of yoga is basically a, a young 30-year-old white woman yeah. who's very bendy and flexible. In active wear. And if you're not like that, then you're supposedly not great at yoga. 
right? Right. Whereas the the origin of yoga has nothing to do with any of that. So it's really interesting how yeah. once we get a hold of something in our culture and we change it, 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 it starts reflecting the culture. Our own values. But not necessarily the values of, of the actual thing that, that and I think... Yeah, because I mean, I, I spent time living in China and Hong Kong and every morning I'd see these old and young people waking up doing Tai Chi. Yeah. You know, they were sort of, that was sort of the morning ritual and you'd, you'd actually see companies like do it, like all their staff. Right. But it sort of comes through here to the West and it's an app. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> an app with a young white girl in her 30s, you know, because sex sells in our society. Right. So the sexier the per- the practitioner is, the more people are going to want to buy it. Right. Yeah. So if they well, put a, If they put an old toothless, you know, Chinese guy doing Tai Chi or some old, you know, pot-bellied Indian guy teaching yoga, no one would go take a yoga class because we don't want to look like that. Hmm. Well, presumably we don't have to become pot-bellied in order to, to no. become more enlightened though. So, so you know, when, when people try and take those first steps uh, to becoming more mindful, um, do they have to become some sort of advanced practitioner? What's, what's sort of the starting point to just sort of... Well, that's, that's, that, that's what I find really interesting about, about mindfulness and, <clears throat> and meditation. And I, I, I want to make that distinction because not, you know... You can be mindful, but you don't necessarily meditate, or you can meditate without having to acknowledge anything on a surface level of mindfulness. Um, but what's what's really hard, and we talked about this earlier, is it's hard to have a contrast between advancement versus uh, being a, a, a basic practitioner, if you will, because one of the things that mindfulness does or meditation does is it it causes you to, to question things at your deepest level, hmm. and that may cause a bit of a shakeup in your life, right? So you can be married to someone, um, have a beautiful, seemingly beautiful life, have a great job making lots of money, you start practicing mindfulness and realize, well, this is not really who I am anymore. And who I am is actually, you know, I want to play basketball or I want to become a professional golf player. You know, I want to so now we know travel the world. Michael Jordan was a meditator. <laughs> yeah, he was actually a meditator because his coach was a meditator. But that those kinds of changes on the surface may not seem like, oh, that guy's in a better position than he was before. Right. Right. Because the way we gauge success in our society is based on material possessions and, and and your worldly positioning and that kind of thing. But if you could measure his heart and the inside and how well the guy sleeps at night, you may see a marked difference in the way he sees himself and experiences life uh, as a unhappy millionaire versus you know the way he would experience his life volunteering 24 hours a day or, or hmm. you know whatever changes take place. So it's, it's challenging but and it's and it's it's something that can only be experienced directly, which hmm. I which I love about it because it makes it really hard to, you know, it's not like you you're a yogi because you did a dance class and you put some pictures on Instagram and now you have you know a million followers and you're like this yoga superstar because you can go into a handstand. It's right. not like you can't you can't you there's can't no, fake there's, it. There's no obvious manifestation. No, you of, can't of, fake of it. Skill. No. So, but people can feel it when they're around you and they hear you. They can feel that if this guy is authentic or not, or hmm. this woman is authentic or not. And how do you, how do you how do you attain that? Is it, is it breathing? Is it mantras? You know, there's so many different pathways. I think 
I uh, heard that one group of scientists just studied someone who was staring at a, at a dot on a wall. And yeah. That, that seemed to be quite effective as well. Well, you know, there's an interesting study I read uh, recently. It was, a, it was, I don't know the name of it. I just call it the piano study. And hmm. long story short, they had three control groups of people who did not have any experience playing the piano. And one group they brought into a piano room. Everyone sat at a piano. They taught them a single five-fingered exercise. And they had them practice for two hours a day for five days. And at the end of the five days, they measured their brains to see if any changes were uh, taking place in the part of the brain that's responsible for the motor skills for playing the piano. And of course, there was some sort of neuronal, interneuronal connections that had hardwired um, related to piano playing after those five days. So the second group, they come in, they have them sit down, show them the same exercise. The only change in the instruction is, we don't want you touching the piano. Instead, we want you to visualize yourself playing the piano for two hours a day for five days, just practicing that exercise in your mind. Hmm. And at the end of that five days, they measured, they measured them and they found that they had the same changes in their brain as the people who had actually played the piano scales. Right. The third group, they had them come in to the room. They said, sit down at the piano, play whatever you want for two hours a day, and then um, we'll come back the next four days. So same, they, they invested the same amount of time, except there was no structure. They had no changes in their brain. So what that, the conclusion from that study was that, you know, there's definitely something to structure and the mind is as, pow is as powerful. Visualizing yourself, so there are a lot of visualization practices. But we respond to training. We respond to structure and training. Right. Yes, yeah, structure and training. And that's been my experience. Like I've dabbled in meditation for a long time before I started actually meditating with structure. And that's where I started to see the biggest changes inside. So I would say whatever path you choose, Find some structure and potentially a teacher to show you um, what you're doing and, and stick to that and, and then you'll see the biggest changes. I notice this in some other cultures. I've spent quite a bit of time in Japan. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've always admired about the Japanese people is that whatever job they're doing, uh, however small or seemingly meaningless, they'll turn it into a form of meditation. Mm. So you'll see the guy who's like, you know, cleaning the balustrades in a building and he's like doing it in such a precise, mindful, you know, hyper-disciplined way. Or yeah. someone doing a tea ceremony. It, it doesn't matter what it is, but people take incredible pride and they're very present with whatever they're doing. Yeah. So in a way, that part of the brain in the piano study you're talking about is being, is being activated. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions in our society is that people, we have this assumption that there are throwaway moments, right? Yeah. And my whole... My, the, my whole messaging is that there are no throwaway moments. So meditation is something that I teach, but it's really it's really a tool to help you create experiences that you desire. And those experiences are found in the in-between moments. Like all that fulfillment and happiness is in the in-between moments. It's not really about the big achievement. The big achievement is great, but we've all had the experience of achieving the big thing, <clears throat> feeling that wave of joy, and then what happens? It goes away, hmm. and you're right back where you were before. And now you're just waiting for the next achievement to come in, kind of like waiting for a wave. But what about the paddling? What about, what about those in-between moments? And if you can find that same sense of accomplishment in those in-between moments, then the wave of joy continues uh, perpetuating throughout your, your entire day, which is, which is having a change on your whole biochemical structure and ultimately causing all of that to, to habituate towards 
right. feeling that way all the time. So without this, you this having, isn't just meditation. Without you having to be mindful. Right. This is this is perspective and mindset as well, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's about really transcending mindfulness. I think yeah. mindfulness practices. If you have to always be practicing <laughs> mindful, you're never going to really be mindful. Right. You want to get to a point where, like your Jap- the Japanese experience, you're you're just doing it in a mindful way without thinking about it, and then that's true mindfulness. I, I get a bit concerned when I watch the way people fill in their moments in the day generally, though, which is you know, Instagram, mm-hmm. Snapchat, Netflix. I mean, we don't talk about meditate and chill. We talk about Netflix and chill. Right. Um, so, <laughs> so it's almost like we have so many potential distractions now um, that when you watch people who are sitting alone in a the cafe, they're never actually just sitting there looking around. They're staring at a screen. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you think in a way... We are conditioning ourselves um, to actually be even less present because of technology. You know, that's a really good question because obviously, you know, I've been guilty of all of that sitting in a cafe on my phone. Um, and I think that it's easy to justify doing that if you if you kind of place some sort of higher purpose on it, like I'm trying to figure out, you know, how, how to, to get to the next, to level, to the of next level of, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it's, 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 I think it's an interesting question and it's an interesting challenge. And I think asking the question is a good place to be in. Hmm. You know, if you're in there and you're not even conscious of it, then that's, that's, that's not where you want to be. You want to at least be conscious, say, I'm sitting here on my phone, I'm doing this, or I'm watching Netflix, and making it a more of a conscious choice versus um, a habit that you have no control over. And I think that's really where unhappiness comes from, is people wake up one day and they realize, I've got all these habits and I have no control over any of them. Hmm. And I went through a phase in my life, in my early 20s, where I started actively trying to uh, destroy all of these habits that I felt like I didn't have any control over. So I stopped drinking alcohol. I stopped eating meat. It wasn't necessarily because I, you know, feel compassionate about animals or anything like that. I just I felt like I was I was consumed with thoughts of you know my next meal and it had to have these certain elements in it. And if it didn't, I wasn't going to be happy. So it affected hmm. my inner state, and I just worked my way down. And it got down to chapstick. I realized. Oh yeah, that's I realized disgusting habit. I wouldn't. I had to have <laughs> a chapstick in each pocket and three or four hidden in my house. And if I didn't have chapstick application every five minutes, I would. I wouldn't be able to do anything. And I didn't want to have that. So I literally forced myself to to break that habit, which is really just about time and 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 going cold turkey. How many years this now has it been since you've used a chapstick? Um, I stopped. I literally stopped back when I was like 27. So it's did, been. Did they give you like a medal? Over 10 like, years. Like, <laughs> well, the medal is the medal is you wake up one day and your lips naturally lubricate themselves, and they never did that before. So, so that was actually it was a small little win, but it was it was the the repercussions were huge because I realized that you know I I don't I don't have to to have all of these habits that I don't have control over. And then I would go back and start reapplying things or re-experiencing things, knowing that I could, I could, if I needed to go without it, I could. And, hmm. and that's, that's more freedom than having to, to be bound to these things. So I think, I think um, it, there's nothing wrong with watching Netflix, obviously, or, or being on your phone, as long as you know you can go without it if you had yeah. to. And you're right, we're so unconscious about the way that we have constructed our daily lives. Yeah. Um, it's just this massive habits and you know nervous ticks and 
yeah. and things that have been implanted into us. Well, we're feeding into a level of anxiety that we then have to take medication for, yeah. and which means we have to keep working to pay for the medication. And so it just becomes this whole snowball thing. Whereas mm-hmm. if we really sessed out what was important, I think no one would leave their house without meditating and or have some sort of, you know, 20 minute exercise routine built into every day and everyone would eat something green every day. I mean, these things are not difficult, you know, but we need to prioritize them if if health and wellness is really what we want out of life. Otherwise, it's all just it's all just BS. And and what we're funding is is a condition that we're going to have to end up spending a lot of money to try to reverse at some point later. Well, what does the future of wellness look like? Uh, where does it intersect with technology? I think that uh, that there are a lot of great applications for technology, and I'm I, I'm personally not you know I'm I'm not into I'm not working in technology <clears throat> directly. I'm, I'm definitely affected by technology, and it helps people contact me quicker and get mentoring and training. For but you don't me. think there'll be some sort of meditation like ECG device that we strap on? I think I think there there could be. The problem is, and what I've seen in 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 the current offerings in, in technology and apps is that the people who are developing them aren't necessarily meditators. They're marketers <laughs> who've spotted an opportunity. That's never a good sign. And so the... It's like those biofeedback devices, which were big in the 70s, right? Yeah. They sold in mail-order catalogs. Yeah, but the real meditators don't care about that stuff. It's the people who are trying to still convince themselves that meditation is a good thing that go out and buy all these little silly apps and wearables. And, right. you know, they have to convince themselves that, oh, yeah, this I'm not wasting my time because that's what everybody's so concerned about. But when you really... If you really uh, pull the lens back more, what you find is that your your biggest asset is not really time; it's your ability to adapt to mm. change. Because that's the nature of the world we live in: is is everything is always changing. You can have all the time in the world, but if you're not able to adapt to it, you're going to. And, and you think that's connected anxious. to mindfulness? Your your, your ability Absolutely. to adapt. Yeah. What, what's the connection? Because if that's true, I, I can definitely see why you know companies and leaders uh, they they're, they're struggling to get their people to be more adaptive and more agile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mindfulness again is is like a, it's it's a holistic um, point of view, and so what that means is when you when things aren't going the way that you want them to go in, I think what we tend to do is we tend to become object referral, meaning oh it's the economy, it's it's this it's our competitor, it's um, it's an employee that's not doing what we want to do, not realizing that well our whole culture is is reinforcing this unsustainable approach to life wow. for the individual employees. You know, we may be requiring them to work a certain amount of hours where they're not able to sleep properly to show up and be present and be mindful. And so mindfulness as a corporation is really about looking at everything within that corporation. And how they're all interconnected. Yeah, because when I'm, I'm being sequestered now to you know to introduce uh wellness into companies and people think you know let's just take some closet and turn it into a meditation room but you can't that doesn't there's so many little factors it's not just about having a meditation room just to say you have a meditation room right it's got to be the right type of room you know and it's got to be the right time of days that you have and so this room can't be right next to the 
vending machine where you know there's got to be a certain sound quality and light quality and, and you can't dock people's pay when they go into it yeah <laughs> so so much more things need to be considered and uh and i think that we're still at the stage right now where people are just they're just throwing the term around just to help to lure in more higher recruits or something like that but they're not really putting a lot of thoughtfulness they're not putting the mindfulness into the decisions that they're making people are often quite intimidated about the process uh, and, and i've heard you speak about this and it is it, very interesting about the myths of meditation uh, well, yeah. what are some of the classic pitfalls uh the biggest one that i hear all the time is my mind is too busy to meditate right which is basically like saying i'm not in shape enough to get on the treadmill Right. Well, if you're going to Equinox West Hollywood, I mean, you probably have to work out before <laughs> you go right. there. So, I mean, there's well, some there, truth in that. <laughs> in Los Angeles, yes, that is true. But in, in most cases, no, you, the treadmill helps you get into shape. Yeah. And, um, and, and rejecting the thoughts actually perpetuates the problem. So one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing in my trainings is in helping people reframe the idea that actually thinking is not just... It's not a part of meditation that you have to tolerate. It actually should become an aspect of meditation you look forward to. Because we also know now that the mind has this rest network that activates a, a more efficient level of problem solving. So obviously we all have problems that we're kind of dealing with on a daily basis. And meditation can be a really great way to allow the mind to work all of the different angles and solutions for you and then print it out for you either at some point in that meditation or as a result of meditating later on in the day. Hmm. So your mind can actually be very busy, but it's actually working for you. It's not working against you. And uh, and that's one of the biggest complaints I hear is people think, oh, I'm just thinking about my to-do list. Well, exactly. Your mind is actually working through your day more efficiently than you could ever work through it on your own waking state consciousness. Because when you tell your mind to not think, of course... It makes it think more. Right. Right, yeah. So don't think is a thought. You know, why am I still thinking that's another thought? It's a big waste of time. It's an exercise in futility. Right. So if you just switch that, what you find is, ironically, you have less thoughts. That's like the biggest secret about meditation that most people aren't really aware of. Is that you? When you lean into the thoughts, you get rid of the thoughts. I, I saw you do this with an audience in Venice Beach, where you told them not to think about a polar bear. Yeah, and that was something that I got from a study that I read about it from Harvard, where this uh, this doctor, this psychologist, wanted to see if it was possible to suppress thoughts. So he became hmm. the, the one of the uh, pioneers of thought suppression psychology research, and. The way he tested it was he had a classroom full of students. He had them all hold uh, little uh, bells or, or um, clickers in their hands. And he had them sit for five minutes first uh, thinking about white polar bears as much as they could. Anything about the white polar bear. And every time they thought about the white polar bear, they were instructed to click the clicker in silence. Hmm. And then after that, he had them try to not think about the white polar bear for five minutes. <laughs> and, of course... Um, Even now, all I can think about is right, polar bears. When they told them not to, <laughs> and if they accidentally thought about it, they had to click the clicker. And what they found was that when they weren't supposed to be thinking about the white polar bears, they thought about them a, twice as much as they did when they were supposed oh, to be thinking so about it. it. It was actually even more potent. They were obsessed. Everyone was bordering on obsession right. about white polar bears when they weren't supposed to be thinking about the white polar bears. Right. When they were given complete permission to let their minds roam free and think about whatever they wanted to think about. That's all they could think about. Which is why, as you say, like trying to you know, force a state of mindlessness on yourself yes. will generate chaos. Yes, yes. So, you know, regarding um, 
the, the, the technology is still very uh, young in this area of, of, of creating metrics for all of this inside the mine. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have a diff- difficult enough time tracking the mine in sophisticated research institution laboratories. And there's still a lot about the mine that we don't know. We still don't know where thoughts come from. Um, there's a lot of speculation about, about that in theories, depending on who you ask. And we still don't know um, what potentials lie, reside within the mind. You know, for all we know, we could fly as humans or we could, you know, disappear and reappear somewhere if we were able to stimulate the mind in certain ways. We do know that the mind is probably the most powerful computer that we've discovered in the universe. And uh, well, we, we, we still can't build a computer as fast as the, no, as the average mind. No, not at all. And we also know that the mind can play with the universal mind. And so there's all kinds of potentialities and possibilities within there. And one of the practices that we've seen that can evolve the mind the quickest, obviously, is meditation and, and mindfulness. Hmm. But again, it's got to be you've got to commit to it. There's got to be a structured practice if you want to get real benefit from it. And uh, and so it's 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 a great time to be alive because there's no as a society we've never embraced a practice like this as much as we're embracing it now. So the future is is going to be amazing. Um, you know, regardless of how people are wasting time now, I think. I think we're we're going to see some pretty amazing things happen with human potential uh, related to meditation. It's going to be the equivalent of the Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile um, back in the 1970s or 80s uh, as far as the mind and, and, and meditation are concerned. Everyone who's listening to this podcast is immediately going to be sitting down trying not to think of what they were there. So <laughs> is there something simple that you can you can share with us that people can maybe start with yeah yeah three three simple steps for practicing mindfulness sit comfortably that means have your back supported and uh forget about all the images you've seen with people meditating you don't need to turn your hands up you don't need to bring your fingers together just have your hands and feet relaxed as if you're watching netflix and (laughs) number two close your eyes and and notice your breathing you don't have to focus on it you don't have to control it you don't have to use it as an anchor just notice it lightly and then expect your mind to wander away from it after only a few seconds. Your mind is going to wander away to some other thought, and I want you to allow this to happen. Don't fight it. Don't resist it. In fact, look forward to it smilingly. You know, Anticipate it. And when it happens, you're just going to let yourself enjoy the experience, whatever you're thinking about. And then number three, when you become aware that you're thinking, have no judgment around the content of the thought because the content doesn't matter when it comes to meditation. This is a process oriented. So the process is you just return to your breathing and that's it. And then you come back, you notice your breathing and then your mind will get lost again and you'll return to it. And then you get lost again and you return to it. And this is really beautiful uh, sort of elliptical, you know, loop type of thing that's happening with between your breathing and your thoughts. And the art of meditation is to be as nonchalant and as indifferent as you can be around the content of your thoughts. Most amateur meditators make it all about what they're thinking about, and the and the veteran meditators, it's all about the process. You know, a did you did you show up to the practice? Yes. Did you sit down for the entire time of the practice? Yes. Were you able to be indifferent during the practice? Yes. And then if you did all all those things, then that was a good meditation. Thank you, Lyd. Well, thank you for being on the show and for sharing your uh, wisdom with us. And it was great to see you. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. See you, man. Okay. 
You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.